The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Glad you are with us today. I know there's many folks who are off camping and enjoying the, the beautiful Southern Oregon topography. I was able to go backpacking a little bit last week and, and then a little bit earlier the week before that. And, and I camped the week before that, and, and so we've been camping a lot. And so I walked in, I think like three people asked me today if I actually work. It's like, yes, I work. I just enjoy the mountains when I'm not working. Don't judge. I'm thankful to live here. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad you're here. Sincerely, I'm glad you're For the folks that are tuning in online, we're glad they're here. Really thankful for the people that are out in the overflow. Uh, we, are, we are getting to the very, very end of our sermon series through the book of Mark. I'm excited about, we're kind of getting to the, the kind of the, the crescendo, the apex, the, the peak conflict of the story. If you look at it as a plot arc, plot arc we're, we're, we're approaching the most significant part of the book over the next few weeks, and I'm really looking forward to preaching through it and spending that time with you today. Today, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 14. We are going to be in verses 12 through 25 today in Mark's gospel. If you were here last week, Pastor Jeremy introduced us into the, the 14th chapter of Mark, and he, he settled us in this, this incredible story of Mary, the, the, the sister of, of Lazarus. And she was worshiping Jesus, and she had this expensive alabaster jar of nard that, that was uh, essentially the equivalency of a year's worth of salary. In today's terms, about $67,000. And we watched last week as this woman who uh, wanted to give her very best to Jesus. She recognized the worthiness of Christ. She broke the alabaster jar and lavishly poured it over the head of Jesus. And other gospels tell us that she washed his feet with her hair, and, and there's this incredible scene. And Jeremy, last week, sort of bamboozled us a little bit, if you were here. He, he, he talked about how Chanel Number no. 5, if you buy, it's a very expensive perfume, and he, and he said that the, the elders had given him permission to buy a $30,000 bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. And here in our presence, he poured out this bottle of perfume as we watched as $30,000 just poured out. And it was interesting because he never let us off the hook. At the end of the sermon, I had someone come up to me and say, I can't believe the elders let him spend $30,000 on a bottle of perfume that he just dumped out. I'm like, that was a joke. Like, he didn't really, we didn't spend $30,000 on a bottle of perfume. And I got up here and I made a quick announcement and I was sort of panicky. I didn't get any emails, so evidently the word got out that we didn't spend $30,000. But isn't it interesting the way that that, that, that caused us to, to be troubled a bit? Isn't it interesting? Because the whole point of the text was the disciples who loved Jesus, wanted to see his kingdom, his messianic kingdom expanded. They're, they're gathered around, and they're, they're with Jesus, they're reclining at table. And this woman, who, who sort of breaks all these social barriers, she comes in and she pours this perfume on the feet of Jesus, and, and, and she's rebuked. Like, why would you waste thirty or $60,000, a year's worth of salary, on Jesus? And the whole point was that he is worthy. And Jesus said, I'm worthy. And as I sat in the audience and as I was listening to the teaching of Jesus and I was imagining those of us here thinking that we were really pouring out $30,000 worth of perfume, it was unsettling. And I had a lot of conversations with some of you guys. You're like, that seems wasteful. <laughs> and that's exactly what those disciples thought 2,000 years ago. It was actually a really wonderful illustration, even though it might have got us in a little bit of trouble. But I'm glad. I'm glad that the, we're, we're, just, we're gifted here. Jeremy and his family are on vacation. Aren't we just gifted to have godly men like Jeremy? 
and, and the other staff here and the elders that, that just give and serve so faithfully. I'm, I'm so thankful to be at a church where I can be a lead pastor, but I can sit under the teaching with my family. And I don't have to be the guy with all the answers because I don't have all the answers. And those of you that are older, I'm four, almost 47. Isn't it interesting how the older you get, you realize how little you actually know? And you're like, oh, I'm actually just a moron. I need people <laughs> in my life. And I'm just thankful to be a part of a church where that plurality is shared. And I get to sit under the teaching with my family. Hey, Mark 14, let's read verses 12 through 25. And, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll get into the teaching. The heading should say the Passover with the disciples, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, said to Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And his disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table, eating. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I ask that as we open up your word this morning, as we sit under the authority of your word, God, would you help us? God, would you help us to, to hear the things you desire for us to hear? God, would you help to, to clarify the things in our minds that are fuzzy? And God, would you help the things we hear and understand and intellectually engage with? God, would you help that to travel and to penetrate our hearts, God, to bring transformation and obedience and worship that you would be glorified in this place today? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is, is Independence, or tomorrow is Independence Day. This is Independence Day weekend. And as we think about the 4th of July, I mean, this has been an American holiday for, for a very, very long time. We've all grown up with this holiday, and we know the history behind it. You know, we are remembering on July 4th what happened in 1776 when the Constitutional Congress, uh, frustrated with Great Britain's uh, oppression, they signed the Declaration of Independence. America was born, and these brilliant and brave patriots help to birth a new nation. And every 4th of July, we gather to remember. And we see American flags, and we have fireworks, and we have all these traditions that are designed to help us remember the foundation of our nation. It's supposed to lead to patriotism. It's supposed to be a memory tool for us to be thankful for the place in which we live. And many of us do that. 
And this is an important weekend. It's an important holiday. All of us are familiar with it. But actually, this, this weekend is more significant to me because today is actually my 23rd wedding anniversary. 23 years, yes. Yes, I see my lovely wife in the back. Hey, Becky, why don't you stand up and tell everybody how much you love me? Just go ahead. And, just go ahead and do it. No? Okay. She hates me right now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I was 23 when we got married, so I can, I can honestly say the, the second half of my life has been much better than the first half of my life, thanks, thanks to my wife. But yeah, so, so we remember our anniversaries much in the same way. The anniversary reminds us of the love story that we're caught up in. And if any of you know me or follow me on social media, you know that there, there are multiple anniversaries that I celebrate when it comes to my wife. Uh, several months ago, we did a series on marriage here and family, and I talked about, Becky and I shared about how we think it's important to share your love story often. That's a healthy part of keeping your relationship you know, healthy and intimate. And, and so we have all these different dates that, that we recognize. Actually, the truth is I probably recognize them more than my wife because I tend to be the one who, who's a little bit more, more mushy when it comes to that stuff. But so it's not just July 3rd. I met Becky on August 14th, 1993. I'll never forget the day. Uh, that was the first day I met her and my life changed forever. Lame. And, uh, and then we went on our first date on April 27th, 1997. And uh, Becky became my, uh, my one and only on July, or January 25th, 1998. And I asked her to be my wife on November 13th, 1998. Uh, uh, she became my wife on July 3rd, 1999. So my calendar is marked with these dates. Every November 13th, I remember the day I got on my knee in the mall and asked my wife to marry me. Again, lame. Every January 25th, I remember, you know, with trembling reality, recognizing she is the one. And her and I looking each other in the eyes and saying, you're the one. Let's make this real. I remember our first date, smelling her hair like a weirdo. I remember all these dates. And they're designed, these dates, they allow me, they allow us to, to remember the love story that we're caught up in. This is important to us. It stirs for me affection for my wife and it compels me to express my love and my devotion to Becky. By focusing on what we did back then, it makes a difference for how I love my wife today. And so today as we gather, we have the Lord's Supper as a part of our worship today. We are going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Supper in part is a memory tool that reminds us of the love story that we're caught up in. It informs the way we worship. What happened back then informs the way we worship today. But I, but I wonder, I wonder if I was to kind of, I heard someone say this week, if we were to pass out note cards to everybody present here today, and I was to ask you to grab a pen, and on this note card, tell me why we do communion. I wonder what the, what the responses would be for those of us in the church. Why do we participate or partake in the Lord's Supper? Why, why do Christians around the world take little bits of bread and little bits of juice or wine I heard it asked this way by another pastor. He said, here's the question he, he, he asked his audience to consider. What difference does what Jesus did then have in my life now? I think that's a good question for us to consider today. I think communion helps us get there to the answer, the right answer. What difference does what Jesus did then have in my life now? So let's turn back to our text. I want to work through the text a little bit. You can follow along as we're going to teach through it's interesting, if you look at our whole passage today, I don't know if you caught this or not, but the, the passage is loaded with language about eating and drinking. Did you notice that? Five times in our passage, we see the word eat. Five times. It's in verse 12, it's in verse 14, it's twice in verse 18, it's in verse 22. And then in, in verses 23 and 25, we see the word drink three times. Our, our passage is loaded with this language about feasting or, or, or meals. And I think if I were to, if I were to, 
my, my best understanding of this passage as I studied it, I think the emphasis on this passage is actually there are three meals that I think we're intended to see here. And then this is going to kind of outline how I teach the text. The three meals I think we're, gonna, we're intended to see. There, there's a Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples on that night then. I think we're intended to see that meal. There, there's an allusion to a future meal that we will one day celebrate with Jesus. I think we're intended to see that future meal, what has been called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll get there. And I think ultimately there is this, this third meal that we're intended to see in the text today. It's this, it's this institution of, of the present meal we're going to celebrate today. It's the meal that God intends for his disciples to share the Lord's Supper. It's an ongoing meal. So I actually have all three. If you want to take a picture or you want to see what all three points of my sermon are, there they are. The three meals. It's the meal that night, which is in the past, the Passover meal. We're going to see the meal on that day, which is a future meal that Jesus speaks about in verse 25. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the implication of the text today is that it's informing the way in which you and I participate in the meal today, the Lord's Supper. So those are my three points. That's, that's going to track us through the text. But before we can get to those three meals, there's a bit of a, a prelude or a preamble or, or an epilogue. Yeah, epilogue's first, right? Prologue's last. Man, I always get confused about that. And so if you go to beginning in, in verse 12, there, there's this, this, it's the first day of unleavened bread. This is going to be a Thursday where they're getting ready to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And this was a huge insignificant day in the Jewish calendar. In the Jewish calendar, it was the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which, which takes place usually around March or April in our, in our calendars. And if you were a, a first century Jew, there was no more significant day than this day for the Jew. The Passover was, it was the Super Bowl, it was 4th of July on steroids, but it had been their Independence Day for 1,400 years. The people of God had been observing the Passover meal. The disciples of Jesus no doubt recognized the significance of this day as they're in the city of Jerusalem. This was a time when Jews, wherever they were possible, they would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this meal. Josephus, the historian, tells us that there were as many as two million people that would come to the city of Jerusalem for this Passover meal. And so what Jesus does in preparation for the Passover, he takes two of his disciples and he sends them into the city of Jerusalem. And he tells them that they're going to meet a guy carrying a jar of water. And he's going to take them to his master, and the master's going to take them to a room, and there's this, this bit of secrecy or privacy that's taking place there. And, and we don't know if Jesus had prearranged with these people in the city of Jerusalem, and he had a, an agreement with them before the Passover, or if this was a supernatural miracle where, where Jesus just recognized what was happening in the city, and he sent his disciples ahead, and God, by his Spirit, ordained the whole thing. But either way, these men enter the city, and they meet a man carrying a jar of water, which was kind of a cultural taboo. For a man to carry a, a jar of water was like a, a man carrying a purse, if you will. It was reserved for women and for servants. So chances are this man was a servant. And he led these disciples back to his master's house. And just as Jesus had said, it was. They get in this upper room where they can prepare for the Sabbath. But there was a problem. Judas was the problem. And we read in verses 17 through 18 that when it was evening, uh, Jesus came with the twelve to this upper room to celebrate the Passover meal. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, this is, is shocking. 
I mean, Jesus had been preparing for this meal, right? Uh, he, he had made arrangements. I, I read this week that this meal, this, 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 this Passover meal, this Last Supper, uh, one, one commentator says this upcoming meal was easily the most important meal eaten in the history of the world. Why? Why was this meal so important? Well, because it identified Christ as the ultimate once and for all Passover lamb who would deliver the people of God. And so there's this beautiful picture of fulfillment. And then in the middle of that, Judas makes himself known. And Jesus makes this shocking statement that someone in that room on that night, this, this, this group of men that had been together for three years, one of them was going to betray Jesus. It was horrifying. It was a horrifying announcement. It was, it was the furthest thing from their mind. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit when he said these things. I mean, it had already been a very difficult week. He'd been confronting the religious authorities. It had been an action-packed, filled week. And now with a heavy heart, as he's gathered around the table with these men who he had done life with for three years, Jesus drops this bomb. Verse 19 tells us that the men became sorrowful. And understandably so. Betrayal? Among the ranks? Like, we have... We have weathered storms and opposition, and we have, we have battled demons and death and sickness, and now you're telling us, Jesus, that someone's going to betray you? And they begin to ask one another and ask Jesus, is it I, Lord? And he says to them, no, one of the twelve, though. One of, the, one of you who's dipping your bread in the bowl with me is going to betray me. You know, when I read that, what strikes me about this sorrowful outpouring of the disciples is no one suspected Judas. You see, when I read the Gospels, I just imagine Judas as this sort of like curmudgeon angry guy who's always lurking off in the shadows mad. And everyone would be like, oh, someone's going to betray me. And my assumption would be that everyone's going to be like, yeah, it's probably Judas. He's a jerk. Like, he's, like, look, he's, he's a tool over there. But no, like no one suspects him. Nobody. And they begin asking, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And Judas is in the room at this time. And he knows in his heart what he's going to do, that he's going to betray Jesus. But he goes along with the show. And Judas asks, knowing full well it's him, Lord, is it I? Man, as I read that, and as I think of these men who had spent three very close and intimate years together, they had no clue that it was Judas. I'm reminded of how cunning wolves can be, and actually it frightens me a bit. Now, I'm not sure if you would describe Judas as a wolf or not, but he was a fraud, he was a poser. I've, been, I've chatted with some of you even in this last week about how when I read the, the, the epistles of the New Testament, especially the pastoral epistles, what I see, especially the Apostle Paul warning against all the time, and what he warns shepherds and pastors of all the time is false teachers and the wolves that will seek to come in your midst. And I feel like, man, that is a charge to the leadership of a church. I mean, Judas said all the right things. He looked apart. They didn't know it was him. All the while, he was scheming and planning for personal gain. He was looking to devour the sheep and to, and to deceive even the elect. And even with all of that, even with Judas doing the awful thing that he was about to do, we still see the compassion of Jesus. And you kind of have to read between the lines to recognize this. But there's a description of these men, especially if you look at some of the other Gospels. They're reclining at table, and the tradition was literally to lay our head on each other's breast. So they're laying and they're dipping bread in a common bowl and they're sharing an intimate meal of friendship together. Judas was right there with Jesus, dipping out of the same bowl as Jesus. As they're dipping in a common dish, this was this beautiful picture of, of real 
friendship. I read this week that in, in the culture of that day, to take a morsel from the table and dip it in a common dish and offer it to another was a gesture of, of just true friendship. In fact, if you look at the book of Ruth, when Boaz invites Ruth to come dip bread with him, it's an invitation to, to meaningful friendship and fellowship. That's what's happening at the table that night. And Jesus, knowing full well what was residing in the heart of Judas, invites him. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus actually dipped bread and gave it to Judas. He's inviting Judas to repent, to confess, to change his way. But at the heart, Judas was wicked. He was hard with greed. And so, knowing the decision had been made up by Judas, Jesus looks at him and he shares these devastating words in verse 21. He says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to suffer and die. Judas, you do what you're going to do. I came to suffer and die. You can be a part of that, or you don't have to be a part of that. The Father himself is the one who is delivering Jesus over to the corrupt religious authorities. Now, it might be the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who think it's their scheming. It might be Judas who thinks it's his 30 pieces of silver and his betrayal that's going to deliver Jesus. Jesus went to the city of Jerusalem, and he was delivered by his Father. This was the plan of God. These men were mere pawns. I read this week that if Judas had repented, he would have remained among the twelve though Jesus would have gone to his death nonetheless. And so all of that is this preamble or this prelude that leads us up to these three meals, which I think, again, is the emphasis of our passage. I think we're intended to see these meals. The first point I want you to write down or pay attention to is the meal on that night, which was the Passover meal which occurred in the past some 2,000 years ago in an upper room around 30 A.D., I listened to a friend of mine teach through this text this last week, and, and he helped me kind of, and some of the insights I'm going to share over the next few minutes are, are, are ideas I've borrowed from my friend, because it, it was encouraging and convicting the way he, he, he taught it. But if, if we're going to think about the Passover, what we need to do is we need to, we need to remind ourselves of, of why the Passover was even a thing. And I know we've talked about this a few times in this sermon series leading up to today, but it's, it's something we need to remind ourselves of. What was the Passover? What was the history behind the Passover? So quick history lesson. Israelites were, were, were for 400 years under the oppression of Egypt. They were a large nation living in a foreign land, in the, in, being forced into forced labor. They were, they were miserable, and they were in bondage at the hands of Pharaoh. And so what God did, you know the story, if you're familiar with this story in Exodus, is God raised up a leader, Moses, a deliverer, if you will, kind of a prefigure of Jesus. And, and Moses went to Pharaoh on behalf of God, let my people go. And then Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He didn't want to let the Israelites go. And so God brought plagues to Pharaoh into the land of Egypt. Nine plagues and Pharaoh's heart wouldn't get hardened. And finally, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. I heard one commentator say that, that, that God unsheathed his divine justice in this final plague. And so what God did is he told the Israelites to, to take him in their home a a spotless lamb, a, a, a Passover lamb to slaughter the lamb and to take the post, the, the, the blood of the lamb and, and put it on the post of the door of their home. And then when the, the, the justice of God, when the divine justice of God would come, it would pass over every home where the sacrificial blood was on the door. It was a sign of the faith of the people of Israel. And so the, the angel of death passed over these homes 
But where there was homes without the blood, there was death, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh's own son wasn't even spared. And I heard someone say this week, and it was an interesting thing. How in the world does the sacrifice of a little little woolly animal get you free from the sentence of divine justice? Isn't that interesting to think of? Have I ever just thought about the sacrificial system? How in the world does a a sacrifice of a little woolly animal, animal get you free from the sentence of divine justice? And the simple answer is it doesn't. The lamb's blood was a temporary fill-in for something much greater. The lamb's blood pointed us to something much greater that God was going to do. It was going to be a perfect deliverance for his people. They didn't know it then, as they were participating in that first Passover, but the blood of those lambs was a temporary anticipation of something real. God was preparing for something much greater in the Passover. It just simply points us to that much greater thing. And so God instructed Moses... That on Nisan the 15th, the, 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 the people of God would observe this Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be the seven days that follow. So every year, for 1,400 years with a few hiccups in between, the people of God did this. This was a huge festival. And on the day before, lambs would be slaughtered, they'd be brought for sacrifice. And, the, and then the people of God would celebrate the Passover meal, and for 1,400 years it was much in the same way. The head of the household would preside over this meal. And there would be this well-ordered and prescribed liturgy that would take place. There would be bitter herbs, and there would be unleavened bread, and there would be these four cups of wine, there would be this roasted lamb. And every year, Passover was a major moment in the life of the people of God. And so for, for thousands of years, those millions and millions of Jews observed Passover. All of it, unbeknownst to them, was pointing to something greater. In their mind, the Passover meal was an end of itself, but it wasn't an end of itself. It was an anticipation of something else. It's no mistake, by the way, that Jesus is in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. This was God's plan all along. This has enormous significance. This is the fact The fact that the death of Jesus and the Passover coincide, this is preordained by God. It's all part of his grand plan. We see Jesus in Jerusalem for the Passover meal. It's God's justice and his mercy meeting. And God gives his son as a sacrifice for the salvation of many. And as as we think about that, and there's been much lately in sort of like criticism of Christian theology, it's like, isn't that like divine, like parental abuse? Like, why would the father give his son to be tortured and beaten and killed? And there's people that have a real problem with that. And so we ask the question, what is the motive of the father in the giving of his son? Why would any father give up his son to be arrested and brutally beaten? His body broken as the wrath of God is poured out upon him for the sins of many. Why would God do this? The answer is found very simply in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In love for you and for me, God gave. He gave of his son that we might be saved from his wrath. And so as Jesus and his disciples gather that night for this this tradition, this festival that had been taking place for for centuries and centuries and centuries, there's 1,400 years of anticipation and momentum that lead to this very moment. The death of Jesus and the Passover occurring at the same time is not a coincidence. 
As Jesus and his disciples gather, God is preparing his own lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God. And Jesus is preparing to offer himself as a once and for all sacrifice to rescue his people, to win for his people everlasting life and freedom from slavery. And so this is what God meant to do all along. This was always his plan. In fact, if you go back to to, to verse 2 of chapter 14, we read where as the the scribes and the, and the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, as they were plotting to kill Jesus, the beginning of the chapter tells us that it was just two days before the festivals, and they were, they were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But we read in verse 2 that these, these religious men said among themselves, we don't want to do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So it was their will, it was the will of these corrupt men to not kill Jesus during the Passover. But it was God's will that his son would be the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, whose will would win. Well, it's the will of the Father. And so Jesus leading the Passover meal, beginning in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body, and take the cup. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and and they drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so as these disciples are engaging in the Passover meal, there's no doubt they had done this countless times. This has been a staple in the life of of a Jewish family. They had observed the the Passover meal on multiple occasions. And they would have listened as Jesus, the head of the household, stood up like their fathers did. And maybe they did. As he was going through this very predictable liturgy for the Passover meal, they were used to it. They would have known the script of the Passover meal. They had no doubt experienced this multiple times. They would have listened as Jesus kind of went from one thing to the other, pointing out the things on the table and how they connected in some way to illuminate the story of Exodus of the people of God. And so Jesus would have spoken of the bitter herbs that were at the table that night. And he would have said these bitter herbs are reflective of the bitterness of slavery that the people of God had suffered for all those years at the hands of Pharaoh. And then he would have taken these stewed pieces of fruit and this, the consistency and the density of the stewed fruit was a reminder of the bricks that the people of God were forced to make for Pharaoh under forced labor. He would have spoken of the roasted lamb and as he spoke of the roasted lamb it would have brought to their remembrance the lamb's blood that was applied to the doorposts as death's angel passed over the people of God, and they are sitting there, these disciples, and they're nodding, and they're agreeing, and it was something they knew. It was was a predictable script. But then, in the middle of the meal, Jesus breaks from the Passover script. And he makes a radical departure from what these men would have expected. Verse 22, he says, as he passes the unleavened bread around the table, every man takes the unleavened bread. And the unleavened bread was reflective of the bread they made that night uh, uh, when when they left Egypt, and it was without leaven, so it was a flatbread that was, that was pierced and striped like the body of Jesus. And as they're passing this bread in silence around the table, Jesus says something that none of them expected. Take, he says, take this bread. This is my body. Their eyes would have shot up. Their heart would have skipped a beat. And then he grabs the cup of blessing and he passes it around the table and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This would have been a shocking departure from what these men were used to. This was not the script they had grown up with. They would have been acutely aware of these changes. Their ears would have been attuned. Their attention would have been grabbed. Their their interest would have been piqued. Their eyes would have been locked on Jesus as he's teaching these things to them. And he talks about his own blood. He just talked about betrayal moments earlier. And now he's talking about his own blood. 
And if you think back to the Gospel of Mark, three times leading up to the city of Jerusalem, Jesus spoke of his eventual arrest and death and resurrection. So if you're thinking that Judas has some sort of mastery over the destiny of Jesus, he does this has all been the plan of God. Jesus is divinely in control of everything that's unfolding. And so what Jesus is doing with this Passover meal that was well ingrained in the culture, well ingrained in the hearts and minds of these men, he's taking this whole meaningful thing with centuries of significance and he's saying, this has all been a long and purposeful preparation for me all along. Every Passover meal, every lamb that has been slaughtered over the course of 1,400 years was a shadow. It was a symbol pointing to this very moment. He is reorienting the disciples. The ultimate reality that the Passover has been pointing to is what's going to happen in the following day. As Jesus is arrested and he is nailed to a cross as his body is beaten and his blood pours out. Jesus is saying to to those men then, he's also saying to us today as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, he's saying this meal that you're about to partake, it's not just a little styrofoam piece of wafer. It's not just a little rancid cup of juice. This represents my body. The body of divine Christ which has been given, this represents my blood, Jesus says, that was shed for you as an act of love. And all these centuries as these people gathered around the table, it's always meant this. All those animals, all those sacrifices, they all point to Jesus, the Lamb of God, all of it. Verse 24, he says, this is my blood poured out for many. If you're the kind of person that wants to circle or underline a a word in the Bible, I would encourage you to circle or underline or highlight the word for. Jesus is dying, and it is a substitutionary death. Jesus died for our sins. I remember years ago learning a a technique to share Jesus with people, and I've shared this so many times. You've probably heard the story of, of this man who has to go stand before a judge and he's being tried as to whether or not he's, he's fulfilled God's law. And so he's standing behind this, behind, uh, before this divine judge. The judge is elevated in this, in this judge's bench. And he's looking down upon this, this mortal man who comes into the presence of the judge. And he's being held accountable as to how well he, he fulfilled the law of God. And so the judge asks him just a handful of questions. Have you ever used my name in vain? Well, yes. Have you ever said something that wasn't true? Well, yes. Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? Yes. Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Yes. And so it's clear that this man is a lying, thieving, adultering blasphemer who has been found guilty of violating the law of God. And then Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so this man is rightly handed by the judge a death sentence. And here's this man condemned because of his sin, worthy of death because of his sin, holding in his hands a death sentence. And he needs to walk into the death chamber and pay the penalty that's due him. But then something shocking happens in the story. This judge on the bench rises up and he steps out from behind the bench. He comes down to where this man is standing, trembling and afraid and meek and dirty and shameful and broken. And this judge grabs the death sentence from this man and he takes off his robes and he places his robes over the shoulders of this man. And he takes the death sentence and the judge goes into the death chamber and dies the death the man deserved to die. Shocking. This is the picture of substitutionary death. The judge had no sin, but he died in behalf, on behalf of the sinner. Jesus Christ died for our sins. 
It's interesting if you think about the way in which the word cup is used in in these last two chapters. The first cup is Jesus handing the cup of blessing over to his disciples, the cup of salvation that will come through the covenant that is going to be sealed by the shedding of his blood. And then just moments later, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and his sweat will be as blood as he's before the Father. And what does he say? Oh God, take this cup of suffering from me, but not my will be done, Lord, your will be done. What an exchange. To sinful man, he hands a cup of salvation, and he takes a cup of wrath. It's an incredible exchange. Christ died for your sins and for my sins. And in the coming verses, it it goes bad really fast. The betrayal comes, the trial comes, the cross comes. I think of those disciples who are watching us all unfold in in the next few chapters. Well, the next chapter and a half. And they're watching Jesus, like, willingly go along with it. You know, sort of like that scene in that Superman movie where Superman allows handcuffs to be put on him. You're like, what are you doing, Superman? Just go like this. You don't need to, what are you, why are you submitting to these men? And I can imagine the disciples are saying, Jesus, you calmed a storm. You walked on water. You raised the dead. You cast out demons. You spoke with authority. We heard the Father affirm you from heaven. We saw you transfigured on a mountain. You are divine. What are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen to you? Why are you doing this, Jesus? And then I think about those who are the first-time readers of Mark's gospel. For those of us here, most of us have probably grown up in the church and we're so saturated with the story of Jesus. We're so saturated with the story of the Passion Week, of the cross. We're just so used to it, it's easy for that to be like water off a duck's back because we've heard it so many times. But imagine if you'd never heard any of the story ever. And imagine you picked up the gospel of Mark this morning and you began to read in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and you're up to this point in the, in the book when you see Jesus get arrested. You're like, wait. You already affirmed that you're the Son of God. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? You raised the dead. You calmed storms. You cast out demons. You healed the sick. Why are you letting these men arrest you, Jesus? And then the answer of Jesus comes from heaven. Why are you doing this? I'm doing it for you, he says. I'm doing it for you. I'm dying to provide salvation for you. And that was his answer to his disciples then, and that's his answer to us today. Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. Through his death, all who trust Christ, God makes a covenant. Jesus said to them then, and he says to us today, my blood is the sign and the legal establishment of a covenant It's a covenant between you and God. This covenant guarantees your forgiveness of sins and it guarantees God's salvation will be applied to you. All of Old Testament history is culminating in the saving death of Jesus Christ. His blood is being poured out in our place. This is what this meal is all about. And so the first three meals, we first see the, the meal that happened that night, the Passover meal. And then in verse 25, we see this allusion to a future meal. The second thing I would encourage you to write down is there's the meal on that day, this future day, and it's allusion to the marriage supper of the Lamb or the, the great messianic banquet, as other people put it. If you look at verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. When I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You can underline the phrase that day. This is what some have called the 
the great messianic banquet or what John calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says in his kingdom, those who belong to him may eat and drink at his table. In Matthew, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In the prophet Isaiah, Jesus the prophet says that on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, and refined. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is saying to his disciples then, and he's saying to his disciples today, that there will be a very real future historical event for the people of God. The people of God who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will gather together for a meal in the presence of Jesus again. As he's sitting with these disciples on this night, this is his last meal before he, has, before he, he leaves them. But he's going to come back. And so what he's doing is he is charging his disciples to observe the fullness of the gospel through the communion meal. It is in the communion meal that there is an anticipation and there is hope, but there is this hope that on a future day, one day, a future day, Jesus will return and he will drink from the vine anew with the people of God. And on that day, everything will be made new. Christ will bring ultimate consummation. The redemption of all things will take place. And all of it is accomplished through Jesus' death and his blood poured out for many. And so as we, as we look at Mark 14, Mark records for us this, this moment, this intimate, beautiful, salvific, transformative moment in, in the ministry of Jesus and in the history of humanity. And as we look back at this meal on that day in that upper room in the city of Jerusalem, this Passover meal, it's this meal that will make the ultimate feast, this feast that is coming a reality. As Jesus with his disciples holds up the cup, he tells them this is the covenant of my blood and he passes it around and there's this tinge of death, the blood of Jesus, but there'll be a day when Jesus sits with his people at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the couple represent life and joy and victory. I'm mindful of the 23rd Psalm. For many, it's, it's one of the most powerful of the Psalms, and it speaks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You've heard it, no doubt. Psalm 23, 4, David writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And there's this picture of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And so much of our experience on this side of eternity is, is like that. It's dealing with the difficulties and the darkness of life on this side of glory. But then the picture in verse 5 and 6 is this picture of a meal. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, David writes. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a great hope. There'll be a day we sit at the banquet table with Jesus. Our tears will be wiped from our face. He will renew all things. This is the great hope. Lastly, we're meant to see this invitation that we're about to partake in here in a few minutes. This part, this invitation to the Lord's table. This is the meal that takes place today in the present, the Lord's Supper. And so as we consider, consider these first two meals, we, we, we now approach this, this Lord's table together as a family, as the church of God here in Medford, Oregon at Heritage Christian Fellowship. 
The Lord's Supper is, isn't, is, isn't just about remembering what Jesus did in the past. The Lord's Supper isn't just about looking with hope at what Jesus promised in our future. The Lord's Supper is to be this ongoing meal for the people of God. It's to be a spiritual meal. And it's designed to lead us in, in a daily spiritual a feeding on Jesus, the bread of life. And so as we take the bread here in a few moments, Jesus' body is our bread. Now Jesus is speaking figuratively of his bread at the Last Supper. And what is he saying? Well, as one scholar says, Christ, the bread of life, took on a human body. He lived a sinless life in that body. He bore our sins on the cross in that body. He triumphed over the grave by bringing that body back to life. And now he lives in that glorified body at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes on our behalf. And those who have trusted in Jesus are members of his body. Those who know him share in that resurrection life. That's those of us in this room today who have placed our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, The bread that we break... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We are participating in this resurrection life through the bread. It's through the bread of the communion table that we see the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that he became flesh and dwelt among us. We see the death of Jesus, that he became our substitute and bore the wrath our sins deserve upon the cross. The bread reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' body is our bread when we approach the table. And his blood is the wine. Or the juice. The red wine that Jesus would have passed around the table on that night, it represents the blood that he would pour out for many. The blood of a new covenant. Jesus' blood sealed a new covenant. It's a covenant in which I read this week in which men, women, and children are saved by resting their faith in Jesus' atoning blood. And so just as the blood of the Passover lamb shielded the people of God from death, so now for us today... The blood of the ultimate Passover lamb shields us, God's people, from judgment and spiritual death. One author writes, With the bones of the Passover on the table and the aroma of sacrifice in the air, Jesus' words confirmed the prophetic declaration that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cup is meant to drive home to us who believe the objective fact of our redemption as those who partake and share fellowship in the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood for our sins. And so when you and I take the communion cup in our hands, we're not just punching some religious time clock. We're not just going through the motions. This isn't to be some routine thing that religious people do. When we take the cup in our hands, we are to say to God, I really am forgiven. Not because of anything I've done, Lord, but because of what you have done for me. You shed your blood that I may be forgiven and we can find rest in that eternal truth. So the Lord's Supper is this ongoing celebration that we are, to, we are to participate in as the church of God. It's to be a regular practice for those of us in the church, for those of us that claim Christ as our Savior. It's an act of worship. It's a statement of faith. It's a declaration of hope. So on that night, as Jesus gathered with those men with his very hands, the hands that would soon have nails piercing through them, he distributed these elements to his disciples. He gave of himself to them. In the same way, when you and I come to the table, when we approach the Lord's table, we partake in the bread and of the cup 
It is a picture of how Jesus continues to give himself to his disciples. Communion is a reminder that he is with us. It's not hyperbole. That we might feed on him in our hearts by faith that we might live. And so that question I asked you to consider at the beginning of our teaching. What difference does what Jesus did then have on my life now? If I were to ask you, why do we, why do we break the bread? Why do we take the cup? What would you write? I'm going to share five quick things. Communion, communion is new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 31 of this new covenant. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So this is the new covenant in Christ's blood. It births a radically transformed and radically forgiven community. We're part of that community. And we can now sit together in communion with God and one another at the table. So it's new, it's new covenant. The Lord's table is a remembrance. The bread represents the broken body of our Lord Jesus. The blood represents the shed blood of Jesus. It reminds us of the cross and the lengths through which our God would go to redeem us and bring us back to himself. The Lord's Supper is a communion. It's a communion with God. It, we're sharing the table with Jesus but it's also a communion with one another. We are the body of Christ. And so when we come to the table, we don't do so in isolation. We are communing with God, but we're also coming as the family of God, where there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Christ Jesus as we come to the family of God. There's nothing greater that can unite a people than to be unified under the blood of Jesus as the people of God. That's what communion reminds us of as we commune with him and one another. And though this has been debated theologically for years, Communion is also the very presence. It's Christ's spiritual presence. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, says Christ is spiritually present in a special way as we partake of the bread and the wine. If Jesus is present when we gather to sing worship songs and sit under the preached word, we should expect that he will be present when we partake of the elements. Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon one time said, quote, Jesus comes to us at the Lord's Supper in a way more real than are simply remembering him or simply being granted his grace. Christ is indeed present to us at the Lord's Supper, but not according to the flesh. His presence is a personal presence. This is not some sort of spiritualized presence, but rather a presence through the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord's Supper is its covenant. It's a reminder. It's communion. It's the very presence of Jesus. And finally, it's the gospel. Communion is a reflection of the fullness of the gospel, and the fullness of the gospel is reflected in communion. This is the way in which our God has made a way for you and I to be saved and redeemed and adopted into the very family of God. And so we see these three meals. We see a past meal on that night, a Passover meal. We see a, a future meal on that day, the marriage supper of the Lamb that awaits all of us. And we see this invitation to the people of God to this present meal the Lord's Supper. So today as a church, I want us together as a family in this place right now to embrace and know that what we're about to do is not some formality. It's not some ritual. It's not some religious time card that we need to punch. It is an act of worship. It is a statement of our faith, our unwavering faith in our Lord Jesus.
The practice of communion, in so doing, we are, we are participating in the new covenant and we are remembering the broken body and shed blood of our Lord by which we've been saved. We are, we are communing with Jesus and with those who belong to the family of God. We are experiencing his very presence and we're embracing the fullness of the gospel. When we participate in communion, we're holding close all that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and all who trust in him live. And they look forward to dining with him in his kingdom. I often imagine what this thing we're about to do looks like to someone who has no context. Someone who's not grown up in the church who has no context of Christian practice or Christian theology. When they walk in the room and they see all of us with these little Dixie cups and messing with this little styrofoam thingy and makes all the noise. They gotta just think, that's bizarre. Like, that's not a very big meal. Why are you eating that little round piece of styrofoam? Why, why are you drinking that little, that little bit of rancid juice? Why, why are you having this tiny meal? And if they were to ask us that, our answer wouldn't be that unlike what the answer may have been to those Jews who were delivered from the hands of Pharaoh so many thousands of years ago. If they'd been asked about the Passover meal and their exodus from Egypt, they would have answered much in the same way we answer. So if someone asks you today, why are you taking that little cup and that little piece of, of bread? We would say, well, because we were slaves in bondage. We were under the sentence of death. And now we've taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb of God and we've escaped the sentence. And he is now with us and he is leading us into the promised kingdom. And so when we take of the bread and the cup here in a moment, we are calling out to Jesus again and again, save me. It is an act of worship. It is an expression of your faith. And for some of you, this might be the first time ever in your life you've observed the Lord's Supper with this framework in mind. Maybe some of you grew up in a tradition where you just did communion because that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe you've never thought of the significance behind these elements. And there may be even some of you here today who for the first time in your life as someone who's fully trusted in Jesus, you're going to partake of the elements today as a declaration of your trust in Jesus as you cry to him, save me. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to consider what's going on in our hearts. We're going to examine ourselves. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, that we are to examine ourselves. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. He goes on to say, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. So here in a minute, I'm going to pray. If you haven't grabbed the elements, I would encourage you as I'm praying, and then we're going to, we're going to sing a song. You can go out and grab during the singing of the song. I want to give us a moment as this next song is being played. Hold on to the elements. Hold on to the elements. I'm going to come up after this first song, and I'm going to lead us so we can take these elements together as we commune with God and one another. Pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful that you have given us this ordinance. God, this practice, this as some call this sacrament, Lord, where we can take the cup and we can take the bread. And in so doing, it's a, it's a reflection of the fullness of the gospel and we can partake of these elements. This isn't just something we do to do. Jesus, you instituted this for us, your church, some 2,000 years ago in that upper room. And today, as we, as we take the cup and as we take the bread, we are declaring unto you, Lord, that, that we trust you 
that we, we trust in your substitutionary death in our place as we look at the bread and the broken body of our Lord Jesus, as we take the cup that symbolizes your shed blood, we are declaring our dependence on you. We are inviting you to meet us in this place. We want to worship you with our whole selves. So God, meet us today at the Lord's table. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.